Can our everyday items connect us to a feeling of something bigger? Can architecture be transcendent? When you spend a few hours at the Cosmic House, the London home built by the late Maggie and Charles Jenks, with its Zodiac-themed staircase and its Sundar living room, you start to feel the answer to that question is yes. Every detail from the trove of Chinese scholars' rocks or the Eduardo Palauzzi mosaics links to a metaphysical idea. It is a microcosm and a macrocosm at once. I visited the house for this episode of Confect Corner and it got me thinking about how so many of the things we own hold symbolic value. There's a human urge to invest objects with meaning, perhaps not as explicitly as the cosmic house, but in subtle and nuanced ways, and sometimes even subconsciously. On this show, we'll delve into this theme with a piece on the art of sewing. We'll take a long, inspiring hike on the island of Samos and reflect on how pushing your boundaries and engaging with nature can expand personal horizons too. And we'll also welcome a Korean chef into the studio to reflect on the national condiment kimchi and how it's rooted in family tradition, history and identity. And finally, we ask whether what you wear can influence how you work. Can you summon a can-do attitude from something as simple as a boiler suit? This is Confect Corner, and I'm your host, Sophie Grove. We all really would like to have a bit of a uniform to put on, and it's like we grab it in the morning, we love it, we know we like it, it suits us, we put all the boots and shoes that go with it, and that bish-bash-bosh, off we go, looking fabulous. And that's what you can do with your own homemade wardrobe. You come round a bend, and you're above the vineyards, and I can see straight across the valley to the village where I started. And you realise how far you've come. And you don't want to give up anymore. With leaves underfoot and an umbrella a daily essential, my sartorial hankering centred on something serious, a clothing item to focus the mind. A boiler suit became my quest, and not just any boiler suit, the kind that would ensure maximum productivity. Welcome to this episode of Confect Corner. I'm your host, Sophie Grove, in London. And once again, the stars have aligned. And Gillian DeBias and Marcella Palak are both joining me in person in the London studio. Hello to you both. Hello, the three musketeers around the studio table. I love it. <laughs> yes, hello. hello. Well, we should say, Marcella, you're in town for very serious reasons. It's production week for Confect upstairs on the editorial floor it's all go. Yeah, I'm three days here and uh, it's the classic London weather. It's pouring, so, <laughs> but I'm well prepared. The page uh, is yeah. coming together very beautifully. The pages, yeah. we sort of put them up on the wall. So there's an entire mm. wall dedicated to the magazine. and We can sort of trot up and down and survey how it's looking. Feeling confident at this stage, which is lucky as yeah. it's um, <laughs> Thursday morning. <laughs> now, we always like to start with something that's caught our attention in recent weeks. Gillian, you've been travelling far and wide this month. Well, I do feel very lucky. I had a whirlwind trip to Dakar, Senegal, and uh, it was really on a mission to recce filming, which hopefully will take place next month. The mission was to really discover places where the, the people who live in Dakar go to eat, to see culture, and one of them was to shop. And on the Western Corniche, we found this lovely home interior store called Lulu's. It's really more like an apartment, and the owners named it after the their grandmother and her parents were cabinet makers. So it's really an ode to four generations of a love of furniture. It's contemporary, not exclusively African, but a real spotlight on Senegalese designers and Western African designers with a special pop-up section called Afrikan bookstore with a lot of books in French about Western Africa, design culture, and a cafe that you could find in London or Paris. It could be in Colette or the Conrad shop, but just with real people who live and work in Dakar. So for me, it just had this wonderful sense of place where you know that you're nowhere else in the world but Dakar, Senegal, where real people are spending their days. So I adored people watching there. Amazing. Such an incredible textile tradition and food. We can't wait to hear more about this project, but more soon. Marcella, you've been a little bit more European-based as usual. Tell me what's caught your eye. Three weeks ago, I was still in the middle of Paris Fashion Week, 
And I thought I have to tell you probably not a fashion tip, but a place I go really every time in Paris and Every time I'm carrying a very heavy bag from the store, it's a, actually a little bookstore, magazine stores. In the back there is even a gallery and they are selling also vintage fashion, all on a very small place. And what I love is that it's really about niche publishers. You found magazines and books you can't find anywhere else. Then you have to take the chance and take it with you. So probably you go there. It's in the um, on the other side of the Fashion School du Perré. It's in the Marais. It's open on Sundays, so probably you go there next time. And its name, are you keeping that one in your back pocket? <laughs> Can you share? Yeah, it's, I don't know if you're spelling it right. It's O-F-R or probably also zero F-R, which has to do with the history of the place. But it's three big capital letters, OFR, and that's at um, 20 Rue du Petit Duard in the Marais. So, like I said, open on Sundays. What about you, Sophie? What have you for us this time? Well, I was in Milan last week and I was so struck by the sense that it was mushroom season. Also Paris, when I was on the Rue de Martyrs, there's these punterelles and chanterelles and beautiful mushrooms, girolles, coming out of the fruit shops and vegetable stalls. And it's so wonderful, that sense of when you're in this big urban centre to feel so connected to the seasons. And I was talking to a colleague in Milan about how she's walking through the landscapes with a little knife-clipping mushrooms, how this weekend she's going to be joining a friend picking olives because it's olive season. And I feel that connection is so pronounced in those two cities and I feel like we could do a little bit more of that in London. Did you find that followed through to the restaurants? Like, was it really seasonal with these dishes with mushrooms from the forests? You couldn't avoid them. So every menu of the day had, you know, beautiful, fresh mushroom salad and then beautiful prawn dish with mushrooms. <laughs> As if that would be a kind of natural pairing, but it, it is at this moment in time. And So I, I feel like, yeah, that sense of abundance. So then this weekend I went out and stomped about in the British countryside picking slows and the last of the blackberries and I was there for hours and it's such a great feeling to kind of come home with a nice kind of haul even though slows are quite inedible and all you can do is put them in gym <laughs> which I, I will be doing <laughs> I was going to say things taste better when you pick them but I'm not sure about slows <laughs> Well, our first report takes us to London's Cosmic House, the UK's first Grade 1 listed postmodern house. Open to the public as a museum since last September, the conversion of the private family home began in the late 1970s as a collaboration between Charles and Maggie Jenks and the architect Terry Farrell. This October, Cosmic House inaugurated a new site-specific sound installation, How to Pass Through a Door, by the Jenks Foundation's first artist-in-residence, Mauricia Lewandowska. A tribute to Maggie Keswick Jenks and her contribution to designing, managing and collaborating on the Cosmic House, I went along to find out more. It was a very big task for us to think about how do we make all this domestic, how do we turn it, how do we move from this private zone to the public zone and how do we make things public, what constitutes an archive. That's Esther Steierhofer, the artistic director of the Jenks Foundation based in the Cosmic House. Ever since opening its doors in September last year, this venue has become a laboratory for cultural experimentation. But converting a family home into a museum is not an easy task, especially when considering the legacy of its occupiers. Here's Esther again. Charles was such a polymath, but he's very well known from various different, you know, I think that we have so many different audiences potentially. His early work as an architecture historian and theoretician and his work around the postmodern in architecture and in some ways this house is a built manifesto of his theoretical ideas. It has been built between 78 and 83. It is the same time period when he was first publishing his language of postmodern architecture, which is a pioneering book. The foundation's work is really to work with the archive and activate the archive and bring in contemporary voices to engage and in some ways question and debate what is there, but also kind of bring out and forefront certain things. 
all these incredible ideas of cosmology are in here. The detail is very eccentric. It's kind of incredibly, incredibly kitsch. How much have you changed in the house? We didn't change much, actually, even though we did need to change certain things. We're sitting right now in the architecture library, which was the working library of Charles. It's a little bit the brain of the house that contains all his books that he was using in his work as an architecture critique and historian and writer. This room was usually knee-high of different piles of books and cuttings and articles. This is something that obviously we could not preserve as such because, you know, we do have to make access to the public so the public would not be able to move around it. But it's also a big question of how do we preserve that and how do we catalogue that. But this exhibition is not about Charles. His wife and collaborator Maggie is brought into focus here. Her book, The Chinese Garden, was the first major Western publication on the intricate designs of the scholar gardens of eastern China. And as a writer, designer and gardener, she had as much input into the transformation of the cosmic house as Charles. This was the starting point for artist Marisa Lewandowska, whose year-long residence at the Cosmic House culminated in this exhibition. £40 per colour, plus three extra M. I've become very aware that Maggie's presence, intellectual presence or presence as a designer, collaborator, contributor, was maybe not sufficiently acknowledged. And since in my previous projects, I was always interested, you know, why women who support their partners, especially partners who are well known for their achievements, are missing from the story. Now, I wanted to know more about her when she was alive, and she was very much involved in the design and the execution of that design of the house. Could you raise your hand at the back of the corner? Is that any better? It's very interesting to hear her at a lecture, you know, calling to order a big room and this amazing voice and charisma and a sense that she was really quite talented and formidable person. What sense of her did you get as a person working on the audio archive? Well, it's important to say that there was no audio archive. So what I did was early on in the residency, I asked Lily Jenks if we could make a trip to Scotland where her parents' house was and also where Charles created a room dedicated to Maggie, which contains most of the archival materials. And it was in Scotland that I've come across various cassette tapes, various recordings, which were not really archived. You know, they were just there. And hearing that lecture, you know, was important because there she was as a professional. She was an incredible scholar of Chinese gardens and she was addressing an audience that was also very knowledgeable in Vancouver. But finding a recording is one thing. Making an artwork is something very different. And also deciding how that voice, what role it can play in the artwork, in the context of the house, in the context of my practice as a whole, you know, that's a longer process. Our bedroom cupboards, width 38 inches, 11 slash 16, 11 for two drawers, two 13 and three quarters, six and three quarters each. Maurice's work really does activate the space. At the end of the day, you're in a family home and she wanted to make you feel as if you were being guided by Maggie herself through the house and also the memories. But if there's one person who knows what that's like, it's Lily Jenks, the director of the Jenks Foundation, who's also the daughter of Charles and Maggie. I asked her what it was like to grow up in the cosmic house. The house was designed as an architectural manifesto and a family house, but probably in that order. <laughs> and so we were always in some way brought up to respect the architecture. And it's very playful 
in its references and its color and its symbols and meaning, but it's not necessarily a very house to play in. Although I did, you know, kids will find any way to play in every environment you put them in. So in the architectural library, which we're in now, it has an amphitheater and underneath the amphitheater are lots of niches. And I used to play a lot of games, hiding things in those niches, distributing them through there and kind of ordering that things in them a little bit in the way that the room organizes the books in the bookshelves. And we use the house as a family does, but it was always layered with having people visit, talk about architecture, having groups from the AA or other students who are interested in postmodern architecture come and look around the house and me talking to them as they did from quite a young age. You know, I would have people over and we'd talk about the astrology symbols. It was a new symbolic language my father designed on the astrology, which are in this each staircase. The staircase is a year, goes from December to January at the top. And it has 52 steps, represent each week of the year, and they're divided into seven for each day. And there's a new astrology symbol on all of them. So that was one of the languages that he was creating. And I remember we always used to find your birthday on that and use that as a way to situate yourself on the staircase. And now we head to the Aegean to look at the perfect antidote to the noise and rush of city life, solo hiking. Writer and longtime Istanbul resident Hannah Lucinda Smith went to the Greek island of Samos to find some solitude and reset. I'm standing several thousand feet up on a mountain on the Greek island of Samos and looking out over olive groves and vineyards across the Aegean Sea. A couple of miles away, I can see the coast of Turkey. It's a really beautiful late September day. The sun's out, there's a nice cool wind, and I'm about to set off to do one of my favorite things. One of the things that I do when I want to clear my head, I'm gonna go on a solo hike. I live in Istanbul, one of the world's biggest cities, with a population of around 20 million. I love it, its energy, its unique soundtrack. But with so many neighbours, finding silence and solitude is hard. So for that, I come to Samos, a small, lush Aegean island, boasting 200 miles of hiking trails. They weave through the mountains, around vineyards and ancient monasteries, bringing you to waterfalls, hidden beaches and picturesque villages. Even in high season, when the beaches are packed, you can hike for hours here without seeing a single other person. Once you're outside the villages, there's no phone or internet signal. The only distractions are right here in front of you. The nature, the weather and the views. The route I'm hiking today is a circular route. It goes between two mountain villages called Manalates and Voliotes. It's about seven miles in total and it takes you up into the vineyards and then down through a valley, across the stream and back up again. So through all kinds of different landscapes, through working landscapes, through forest. And I do this route quite a lot in different seasons. And every season there's something different. So when I do it in the early spring, kind of February time, I find all kinds of amazing fungi in the forest. And then in summer, you really see the vineyards uh, really coming to life and also loads of beautiful brightly coloured flowers everywhere butterflies the whole forest really feels alive and then this time of year end of summer seasons changing into autumn the fruit trees are just absolutely laden apple trees and pear trees and fig trees and also blackberry bushes and raspberry bushes those blackberries and raspberries just starting to come out so it never gets boring. The other thing you can observe when you're solo hiking is yourself. Like many writers, my best ideas come to me as I walk and ruminate. But when you don't have a hiking companion, you must become your own cheerleader. Every time I do this hike, I go through the same 
thought process. I set off and I'm happy to be walking. And then I get into the difficult bit where it's all uphill for about an hour and a half. And I just think, I want to give up. If I just turn around and go home, there's no one else here. I don't have to tell anyone. And it's a bit of a battle to carry on, especially if I'm tired or just not really feeling it. But then, just as you think it's getting really unbearable, you get to the top, there's a bit where you're on the flat, and then all of a sudden, you come round a bend, and you're above the vineyards, and I can see straight across the valley to the village where I started. And you realise how far you've come, and you don't want to give up anymore. Soon I'm going to be in the next village and I can sit down and have a coffee before I start the route back. Walking down into the village of Voliotis feels strange coming after the solitude. It's a popular day trip destination on Samos, an unspoilt mountain village full of artist studios and curio shops. On this warm morning, its square is packed with young couples drinking coffee and browsing. I meander through them, feeling like I know something they don't, and set off again on the last leg of my hike. I've reached the point that marks the beginning of the homeward stretch, right on the edge of the valley, just outside Voliotes, and I'm looking across. I can see Manalatas, the finish point on the other side of the valley, and there's a sign here, it says it's 2.3 kilometres and it's going to take one hour. And it's really quite hard to believe because it seems so far away and the valley seems so deep when you're looking at it from here. But it's best not to sort of consider that for too long because actually once you get going, it's a steep climb down and then a steep climb up again. But it's actually a lot shorter and strangely a lot easier than the long path around the mountain that I took to get here. Down in the valley, there's the final hurdle, a gushing stream of ice-cold water that flows down from the mountains. There's no bridge here, so the only way to cross it is to get barefoot and wade across. So I've got my shoes off, I'm stepping in. Oh, this is so cold. That is so nice it's absolutely freezing and it's crystal clear Ooh. oh making my way across oh. careful not to drop my shoes in that would be a disaster i'm just gonna throw them across the rock on the other side there we go and make my way up onto the rock on the other side and after a final steep climb up the other side of the valley, the path brings me out into the mountain vineyards again, and Manalatas, my starting point, is just a few hundred yards in front of me. It's five hours since I set off, and apart from my coffee stop, I've only seen four other people. For Confect in Samos, I'm Hannah Lucinda-Smith. Well, that was incredibly evocative, and I must say I feel quite jealous of Hannah's adventure. Gillian, what do you do to get some headspace or just to get out of that comfort zone? I wish I was more adventurous, but I do share the joy and the reset of walking. And I am an urban walker in whatever city I'm in. I just love being on my own because I think by being on your own, you can just follow your nose and your instincts more. I know some people love to run and to walk to music and to podcasts, but I actually just like to be completely unplugged and just listen to the sounds around me, eavesdrop, pick up voices, listen to the sirens. In Paris, I noticed just recently, you know you're in that city if you close your eyes listening to the police sirens. So it's a mixture of the rhythm of walking, not knowing where you're going, discovering something, but also listening to a city. I think that's really important to me. Marcello, we've talked about this a little bit on the show, that sense of solitary nature or just that reset. What are you going to do after this crazy production week 
to get some headspace. Yeah, so last year I would have answered, I go to an island or I go to a city, like just Chilean said. But now, since a couple of months, I met the yoga teacher of my life. And it's just around the corner where I live. And it's a traditional Indian yoga and it's just perfect. I never had such an experience and I had a couple of yoga teachers in my life, but this one is really the best for my head. So I don't have to travel far. I have just to go like three minutes on my bike and I find my heaven, my reset. It's so nice though, even hearing Hannah Lucinda there talking about that sense of resilience and finding kind of the right just to be alone and the courage to just spend time alone. And in a sense, it is in your head rather than your location. I was swimming the other day and I was just thinking to myself, I'm going to push myself a little bit further, just out of my comfort zone into that sense of the blue sea where you feel like, you know, there's nothing around you and it's really deep below and then just kind of scurry back. (laughs) Then you feel great. You feel like you've achieved something somehow. But those moments are really precious, especially in our our work world, surrounded by people, fellow colleagues, interviewing people, meeting people, and then your own family life where you have all these children who adore you, but finding time to yourself like that swimming in a little oasis of water, I think would be quite precious. I think I might need to meet this yoga teacher, (laughs) Marcella, who's also tempted you for a whole week to a retreat. Yeah, he does retreats like in Portugal or in the mountains and that's really heaven. Well I guess that might be all of our antidote for this week. Coming up, the art of pickling, making sewing chic and dressing for the job this autumn. You're listening to Confect Corner. And now to the art of pickling and preserving. As a potential long, cold winter approaches, there's nothing more satisfying than opening your cupboard to a sea of delicious preserves. Perhaps you've been organized enough to ferment your own, but you'd also be forgiven for seeking out those picklers more expert than yourself. One preserve that's always fascinated me is kimchi. This staple Korean food has a history of over 3,000 years and still delights diners across the world today. To talk about how to spot a good kimchi with some taste testing included, Chef Kimmy, the founder of South London's Kimchi and Radish, joined me a little earlier in the studio. Kimchi is fermented vegetable dishes with made with Korean spice, ginger garlic and Korean chilli powder. Then we preserve them in salt and we leave them until it's fermented. So... We started making kimchi as the way of preserving food because Korea was a really poor country. During the winter time, it's really cold. So kimchi we eat every day, like three times a day. In the morning, we'll eat with maybe rice, with maybe just kimchi itself or a fried egg. And during the lunch, maybe kimchi fried rice or kimchi stew with pork belly. In the evening, we'll eat out kimchi as a side on traditional Korean meal, so it's quite stable. And tell me about your own business, because you are head chef at Kimchi and Radish in London, and you've been in London for nearly a decade. (laughs) Um, But when you first arrived, did you feel like London was in need of this, you know, more complex? Where was the kimchi in London, and did you feel that there was a need for your business to open? At the time, not many English people knew about South Korea either. So when I was trying to find the kimchi, it was quite difficult. There was not many Asian shops. Even though I find some kimchi, it's not the same as I tried in Korea. So it tastes quite vinegary, salty, and it's just like cabbage. It's very bland and it was quite expensive at the same time. So 2018, I started kimchi and radish at first. I started as a once a week in a farmer's market near my house. And we only had traditional kimchi, only one kind. And customers were asking vegan friendly, so I made um, original kimchi from there. Then the other customer was asking if there is like a non-chili version. So I made like um, different kinds of white kimchi, a bit twisted in Western vegetable. Now we have like seven kinds. Well, we've got... All seven here and then three that I was 
really hoping we might be able to taste. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm really very intrigued by the traditional kimchi, yes. which is, you know, your family recipe and the very beginning of your business as well. Can you tell me a little bit about this kimchi and maybe also about making this as a child with your family? When did you do it? Was it a sort of ritual that you did? And how often? Before every winter comes, it'll be about November. So everyone will gather. So my grandparents, my mom, my auntie, one neighborhood. So we will make about 100 cabbage salting same day in the morning. Then in the afternoon, we'll make a paste they will make kimchi during the afternoon. So when our child, not many people were rich or have money to buy kimchi, so we had to make a lot of kimchi during the winter. We just eat rice, kimchi, kimchi stew, rice, something like that, when our child. So every family has different kinds of recipes. Some family use a lot of fish sauce. Some people use fresh fish salted. Or some family, they use very salty, different kinds of vegetables. So when we make kimchi, we prepare cutting them, then salting them for like six hours. Then we make a paste using fresh chili powder. So it will be harvested in autumn and dry them. Then we use sea salt from the seaside in the south coast of Korea. Then we use fish sauce, which is really like three years old fish sauce with like shrimp or like mixed fish, it's very strong flavor. Then we use the vegetable, what we have like radish, it's quite sweet and crunchy. Then we slice them, we mix. Then we use seasonal vegetable if we have. So when I was a child, we used to have our like small garden. So we dig the ground and have elsewhere on the bottom. So we make our kimchi, then put our kimchi on the elsewhere on the ground and put the lid on and leave it for a few months, then eat over the winter time. It lasts until next autumn. I love the idea of 100 cabbages lined up. Now I'm going to try this um, family recipe and the traditional kimchi. Would you like to take a... Well, you've probably tried it yourself many, <laughs> many times. But I'm going to have a, have a nibble. Yeah. And it's an amazing taste. Mm, thank you. Crunchy. But also this incredible kick. Is this a little tiny bit more chilli than maybe another family? This is just perfectly normal. It's not that spicy. So I'm just a kind of... No I'm a bit of a kimchi novice, really, I've got to say. Mm. I do love it, but I have not really tasted the full range but this is an amazing red color as well this yeah it's quite a wonderful thing to look at it's a sort of with flecks of green what's the green element spring onions we use a lot of spring onions and radish like muli daikon it brings out the sweetness so we don't use any sugar in our kimchi so tell me about the fermentation what is exactly happening to the cabbage while something's fermenting? I think a lot of people who are considering making kimchi at home mm -hmm. feel a bit worried about that sort of live aspect of kimchi. Okay, so during the fermentation, it kills bad bacteria which make it mold, so which only stay the good bacteria. So it makes fermented vegetable which make it crunchy, soft, and tangy and jing like that. And that's what gives it longevity. That's what makes it last yeah. for a whole year. Yes. So it's almost like a kind of pickling process, but it sort of develops in that time yeah, as well, so, like a so, fine wine. <laughs> yeah, so taste change, but also there's no vinegar involved. So a lot of people think, oh, do you use vinegar? Well, so it's during the fermentation process that it becomes vinegary. Now let's taste another one of your range. The rainbow kimchi, is this vegan? Yes, this is white kimchi. When I was a child, my mom gave to me white kimchi first because children cannot really tolerate spice. Or in the summer, we eat them very cold with the ice. Mm, delicious. <laughs> what age were you when you first started <sighs> eating three, kimchi? Maybe three, two. Okay, so but this is like less chilli, I'd say. No, no chilli. It's quite fresh. 
tangy, savoury. It's amazing. It's got a, a real crunch to it. It's got almost like a sauerkraut style yeah. texture. Mm-hmm. Um, amazing. And there's carrot in there too. Yeah, but also it has um, ginger and garlic. It, it has it. that real tang yeah. as well, <laughs> but without the intensity of the chilli. Yeah, so also, you can see how this could be a bit more of a sort of family-friendly. Yeah, also it has like a juice as well. It's quite interesting. How would you serve the white kimchi? So for me, I like it as a snacking. So as a side or just on the rice cracker or just as a spoon, I just eat them. But I like to eat them as a cold. It's incredibly healthy. Yes. <laughs> I mean, you can already feel it really livens the palate, uh-huh. but then it's also very moorish. I could just continue eating. In oh, fact, yes. I have been yeah. <laughs> as you talk. Uh-huh. You can hear the crunching in the background. Finally, we're going to taste this wild garlic kimchi. Yeah, this is my creation, so it'll be only one of a kind in the world. So we use a foraging company called Totally Wild UK. They foraging for us during April when it's in season. But it's a different kind of um, garlic. It looks almost like a plant and it's yeah, very it, that's beautiful. That's what we make them. And so this is foraged garlic and yeah. here are the leaves. Amazing. Wow. And this has more of a kick. Yeah. So some people just love it. Some people is not really into it. But it's just like very subtle and it's very unique and it's very good with the blue cheese and on cheese on toasty. It's absolutely amazing. It's got that subtlety <laughs> and you can really taste the garlic, but then it's just very tangy and amazing. You get that wonderful kick and then it's amazing to kind of think about this live fermentation sort of dancing around the palate. So if I were to think about making my own kimchi, even mm-hmm. though these are amazing, mm-hmm. what are your top tips for someone trying to do this at home? So first of all, the ingredients should be really good and fresh. So sorting is quite important. So you need to get what kind of salt method you are going to use and it has to be right amount. So if it's um, too salty, then it'll become salty pickle. If it's less salt, it'll become moldy as it doesn't have like good environment to leave good bacteria. So salting is quite important. Then after that, how you make kimchi, which method. So two kinds of how to make it. You can salt them directly to the vegetable or you can use brine, it's up to you. And after you make them, how you keep kimchi. So after you finish making kimchi, it should stay in room temperature for like three, four days. But it has to be in air locked. And after that, you don't have to refrigerate it. I know these are quite cold. So for me, I like the texture, which is quite crispy and soft. Uh, if you just leave it in the room temperature, it'll become quite sour and the uh, vegetable loses its fiber. So it's very, not crunchy, it's just very soft texture. So if you want the crunch, you've got to keep it cold. Yeah. That's another top tip from Kimmy. <laughs> <laughs> that was Kimmy, head chef and founder of London-based Kimchi and Radish. Sophie, have you ever tried making your own kimchi? I haven't. I will now. But I have made lots of preserves and chutneys and preserved lemons. And it always gives you this incredible sense of abundance in your cupboard that you can just go to and it's wonderful in the middle of winter to kind of open a cupboard and find jam that you've made and forgotten all about and it just holds the memories of raspberry picking in the summer so I love doing it but I think kimchi is such an incredible condiment so I'm going to start getting busy with that. Gillian what about you are you a pickler or a maker of jams? Well, listening to that made me think I should start up again. When we were young, my mother loved to make a red pepper jelly. And as children, we used to always make it with her. And I adored the whole stirring, a little bit of vinegar, quite a lot of sugar. And then what I loved best was she would make this, like, wax top to seal it with. And that, to me, was just, like, so cool, putting the wax on. And then we put some, like, grease paper and we'd put the lid on and then they'd go away like they, they were hidden for a while and bringing them out was always just very special and I just think mm, I did enjoy that so maybe it's time to start doing it myself what about you Marcella? Hmm. As I'm more the outdoor person I prefer the stage before 
That means um, collecting mushrooms, apples. It's more the harvesting that I'm interested in. And for example, I went with my grandfather. We went to the woods and collected mushrooms. And I love this. You can walk hours and hours and get lost in the woods. And my grandfather, he found all the mushrooms. He seemed to have like a third eye just for those, also the smallest ones, mushrooms in the woods, and then drying them for risottos in the winter. So I'm more the stage before person. <laughs> Make a great team. <laughs> yeah. Now, using a needle and thread to create your own clothes might feel like something banished to the past. Yet one company, Merchant and Mills, are on a mission to bring style and purpose to the overlooked world of sewing from their base in the English town of Rye. We dispatch convex Sophie Monaghan-Coons to find out more. I'm watching a large piece of cloth being snipped. It's a rust-coloured oil skin and holding the scissors is Carolyn Denham. The fabric is one of her favourites. They're a practical fabric that was made to do a job. So this was made for, you know, the fishermen going out to sea where they oiled their cotton twill to be waterproof. So this is the same fabric. It's made by the same mills, been going for hundreds of years. And, you know, we love it to make her like a, a cagoul out of, or it's fantastic for bags. And it just has this, you know, the oil in itself, it crinkles up and it looks antiqued as you wear it. So it gets better and better. And I think that's the thing with all utility fabrics, actually. They just wear really well. So they get better and better and richer and richer the more history that they have as you wear them. I'm in Rye, a quaint English town in which cobblestone streets lead to antique shops and 15th century inns. Since 2012, this has been the home of Merchant and Mills, the company established by Carolyn and Roderick Field two years earlier. The shop provides fabrics, patterns and the tools needed to create your own clothes. It's also a place to learn how to sew, in classes held upstairs or at their retreats held over a few days. In fact, they've just renovated a house around the corner for those attending the retreats to stay in. It's filled with second-hand and antique furniture and, of course, everything is upholstered in Merchant and Mills fabrics. I took quite a few design notes for my own home on the tour. But let's go back to the shop. Merchant and Mills is an oasis of elegant taste and timeless design, something that's reflected in the patterns available. So the trapeze, let's say the trapeze, was one of my very first patterns. Super simple, super achievable, but actually also super wearable. But then we go on to something like when we're looking at the September code or the Parker. Again, these are quite traditional and utilitarian pieces. And if we put those with the jeans, we put the jeans with the coat, and we put together then the 101 or the Miller waistcoat and we're starting to have a very distinctive look of, you know, my style would all be utility, but then somebody else could make it and it would look in a completely different, you know, they might make a linen checked waistcoat and a wool pair of jeans and an oil skin coat and it would look completely different. So when I'm looking at what I'm doing and our place in the market, I think it's, it's not too fashionable. I want to think that every design has got at least 10 years in it, but it is also quite exciting in its simplicity. The simple patterns lend themselves well to being recreated in different fabrics, and in doing so, creating a totally different garment. Sustainability lies at the heart of what Merchant and Mills is trying to achieve. I think fabric is like food. It's like every country you go to has its own food, but it also has its own cloth. And, you know, there's so much cloth in the world that each is a reflection of that culture. And again, when we look at the richness of the Indian cloth, it tells us so much about what an Indian culture is like. Also in the shop, we have lots of our samples made up. So if you come in here and you're like, well, I don't know what to wear, I don't know what, what to make, I don't want to make something and then find out actually it doesn't suit me or I wish I'd made it a bit longer, you can come into the shop, but all the samples are here. It shows you what they look like in different cloths, but also you can try one on, decide whether you like it or do you want to change it? 
and it just gives you that head start of making of you know making something that you really love and then from that once you've cracked what it is you want to make like you can't do with all other fashion so you can go and make another and another and another because basically we all really would like to have a bit of a uniform to put on and it's like we grab it in the morning we love it we know we like it it suits us we put all the boots and shoes that go with it and that bish bash bosh off we go looking fabulous and that's what you can do with your own homemade wardrobe is really choose to repeat those pieces that you know that you're wearing again and again In the 12 years Carolyn has been doing this, she's seen the sewing community grow and evolve and a general uptick in people's skill levels. So maybe it's time to pick up needle and thread, obviously, of the sturdy, beautifully packaged sort sold here. But where to start if you're a complete beginner? Well, I would always start with a bag. So I think the key thing is to start with a win, with something that's completely achievable to do. So something like our autumn bag, for example, very simple make, and you can put some leather handles on it or some beautiful webbing handles, and it will look quite amazing. And you'll be like, really? I made this? And lots of people say, oh, where did you get that bag from? Because somehow, even though it's very simple, it will be different. And you won't really know why people stop and ask you about that bag. So I think that's the best starting place because you start to learn the language, pick up some skills, and you're going to have a win because it's fairly simple to do. Sewing is like driving. It's going to take a while to be good. And even when you've passed your driving test, you know, you've got a two years of like, oh dear, you know, of learning. And, it, and it's like that. It's like you do need to learn. But it's a beautiful thing to do. And you can make whatever you want. For Confect in Rye, I'm Sophie Monahankins. That was Carolyn Denham in conversation with Confex Sophie Monaghan Coombs in Rye. And now for this episode's final thought, we turn to power dressing. Fashion writer Lauren Cochran tells us what dressing for the job meant for her this autumn. What we wear in different seasons is defined by the temperature. Shorts for summer months, sweaters for winter but also the mood. With autumn came a hardwired back-to-school feeling, something that can only be satisfied with clothing that feels purposeful, capable, can-do. With leaves underfoot and an umbrella a daily essential, my sartorial hankering centred on something serious, a clothing item to focus the mind. A boiler suit became my quest, and not just any boiler suit, the kind that would ensure maximum productivity. The boiler suit and its cousins, the jumpsuit and the romper suit, are staples of style. But my object of desire wasn't a fashion item. No, I want the real thing, a boiler suit with a tough, can-do attitude. The kind, in fact, worn by sculptor Barbara Hepworth. Hepworth was an artist who knew hard graft. This is evident to anyone who has visited her St Ives studio in Cornwall, a place where it feels like the very air hold remnants of stone dust. Hepworth moved to St Ives in 1950, an era when boiler suits would have still had associations of wartime spirit, as worn by Rosie the Riveter working in munition factories, as well as Winston Churchill, who often sported a quote-unquote siren suit Hepworth's boiler suit was an ingenious repurposing, one that suited her dirty, dusty, not very glamorous work. An exhibition opens this autumn at Tate's and Ives that looks at Hepworth's sculptures and her life in Cornwall, including what she wore. Practical headscarves, Breton tops and blouses were part of her uniform, but she wasn't someone who saw clothes as a necessity. They were part of aesthetic life. For Hepworth, clothes were pleasure, but entwined with work and life. A boiler suit was the ultimate example of function and form combined. We see her working on sculptures wearing one, but also tackling her correspondence. Finding a Hepworth-worthy version in 2022 takes dedication, 
I scrolled through pages of strong contenders from LF Markey, Isabel Morant and APC. But through thinking, what would Hepworth do? I end up at the equivalent of the hardware store where she no doubt found her boiler suit, a website called Workwear Express. There I see a simple navy cotton boiler suit worthy of her work ethic and that of more typical buyers. I have work to do and I have the outfit to do it in. That was writer Lauren Cochran, who seems to have succeeded in her quest for the perfect work-ready boiler suit. Now, Marcella, I'm interested in your thoughts. Do you have a work uniform, something that you wear that helps you get the job done? Oh, this could be now a speech for 30 minutes at least. (laughs) (laughs) Sophie, I think, first of all, this is something which is very personal and something that changes all the time. And Third, I think it's not only for the job, but it's also for all other situations in your life, like the perfect outfit for a hike or for a first date. I think it's all about that you're feeling well and at your best requirement. And this is, of course, not only for the job. I think your production week blazer is really doing something for your mentality today. (laughs) May I say you're both in tweed, so you're ready for for a hard day's work, I can tell. But it's very sharp, and I think a really good jacket can help you get your kind of like mind into gear sometimes. Of course, but actually it was like, I'm thinking where I am going, and I thought, I'm going to London, (laughs) and it's tweed. So I'm, I'm, first of all, try to adapt a little bit where I'm going. I'm going to the mountains or to London or to Dakar. And then, of course, like a good jacket, it's similar to, a let's say, a uniform, gives you a straight back. And this helps, of course. And Gillian, what do you think about the importance of dressing for the job? Well, it's funny. Yesterday, I had to go to the city of London to deliver a legal document, and I suddenly was struck by the difference of dressing in the city. And actually, it was in quite a nice way because we've been so casual for these past couple of years. And it was actually nice to see people dressing up to go to work. And it kind of made me think, you know what, it does make a difference from home to work. And I feel now when I come to work, I should wear a dress because I live in trousers and I'd like a nice, maybe sort of tight fitting dress with a really flowy skirt that I can wear with autumn boots. And I think that difference between work and home is quite important. It is. And I love the moment you put on a a crisp shirt and sometimes you just feel like the day has Mm. begun I've turned a page (laughs) and obviously nothing's changed in your mind particularly but it can just be a nice fresh moment Mm. I always keep my best cream silk shirt for days when I'm feeling a bit tired (laughs) and just kind of get me into gear and that brings us to the end of this episode of Confect Corner my thanks to Julian DeBias and Marcella Palak as ever The autumn issue of Confect magazine is out now and the winter edition will be out very soon on November the 10th. Confect Corner is produced by Carlotta Ribello and Paige Reynolds and edited by Christy O'Grady. If you have a story you'd like us to cover, comment on the show or simply want to say hi, you can reach us at audio at confectmagazine.com. We'll be back next month with more. But until then, from me, Sophie Grove, goodbye and thanks for listening.